Today on IFS Talks, we are so happy to be welcoming Victoria Kirby. Victoria is an IFS and IFIO therapist working in private practice in London. She specializes in sex and relationships therapy and has an advanced accreditation as a gender, sexuality, and relationship diversities therapist. Before moving into private practice, Victoria coordinated a specialist counseling service in a central London sexual health clinic, working with clients of all genders and sexualities who are seeking support for issues relating to sex, sexuality, and sexual health. Victoria is passionate about applying the IFS model to work around sex and sexuality, and she is currently delivering workshops and designing resources to support other practitioners in this area of work. This is Victoria's first IFS Talks episode, and we're excited to have her here and have this conversation. Thanks for joining us, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Victoria. What parts come up listening to your bio? Um, lots of very excited parts, um, parts that are really excited to to be here and to get to talk about this work that I'm feeling so passionate about. Also some some slightly nervous parts, um, some parts that are just, yeah, like, wow, <laughs> wow, I'm here. Victoria, we are living unspeakable times of war and violence that we believe is history from 19th and 20th century and not possible on 21st century. Do you want to say some words on these sad and heartbreaking times? I mean, it, it's just, it's it's awful. And, you know, I have parts that really kind of struggle with this, this sort of polarization of seeing the news and wanting to, to put it away and, and, you know, not think about it. And then, you know, other parts, of course, needing to engage with this sadness and, yeah, parts feeling kind of hopeless and and overwhelmed by that and then the parts that are you know feeling the need to 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 be with life as it is here and so lots of um lots of conflict and and lots of of sadness same here well said thank you for articulating that i'm glad it was brought up We're we're speaking with you today on some of your expertise around bringing the IFS model into work with with sex and sexuality. And you shared with us a lot of information about the workshops that you've created. And clearly, you have an incredibly diverse and articulate background. What got you interested in talking about sex as a therapist? I worked in sexual health before I did my therapy training. So mm -hmm. I was working in, in public health and health promotion. And so I, I first I specialized in young people's sexual health. My job was kind of strategically looking at how to improve sexual health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And as part of my work specializing in young people's sexual health, I was developing sex and relationship education curriculums um, and training up professionals, teachers and youth workers to deliver them. 
So I was thinking a lot in that job about um, about what good sexual health means, about what healthy sexuality means, and really looking at it in a very holistic way, looking at things like how to work with young people around consent and boundaries and healthy relationships, the impact of pornography, you know, all, all that, the range of things that were impacting young people. Um, and I was really passionate about that work. And, and from there, I actually transitioned into um, quite a unique role um, working in London and leading HIV prevention work with men who have sex with men. So with like the, yep. the gay community. Yes. And, um, and in that role, I was doing a lot of work around something called chemsex, which is the use of certain recreational drugs. Um, that really kind of heighten sexual pleasure and arousal and um, men that were using those drugs and then having sex parties. And it was a really, it was such an interesting area of work to be in um, because my job involved really exploring all the factors that were leading people into this the, this world of chemsets of sex parties and drug taking and what you know what I was really seeing was it was these really core needs um, of needing to feel belonging needing to feel part of something um, in the face of you know for this group particularly internalized shame because growing up as gay men or men having sex with men you know, really feeling there was maybe something wrong with them, not able to express themselves. Mm, yeah. And so it was really interesting to me to see this, you know, this this world of, of sex parties and drugs that many people would see as quite extreme, but yet the people being driven by these really core needs that we all have, like these needs to just feel part of something and, and close to people. And it really, I was really inspired in that work. And I really, I wanted to move from working strategically to really working directly with people. Beautiful. Um, so, yeah, so that's when I trained as a psychotherapist. Um, and I initially trained in, in integrative therapy, so psychodynamic and humanistic therapy, um, but was so interested in, in ideas around shame and self-compassion. And that took me to the IFS model, which obviously is, you know, the heart of it is, is this idea of self-compassion, which I just love so much. I think it's so important. Um, and, you know, as I was training in IFS, it just is, it's to me the perfect model to be working with, with sex and sexuality. Victoria, you say sexuality is fundamental to who we are. You say it exists within us from birth until death. Mm. At the heart of it, it's our key attachment needs, including the need to feel safe, to feel connected to people and to feel belonging. Mm. With this in mind, you say we should not leave sexuality out of the therapy room. So why, in your opinion, so many therapists leave sexuality out of the therapy room? Yeah, and I mean, I think there's a, a, a cultural burden or maybe multiple <laughs> cultural burdens that, you know, make us feel um, the, the shame. There's so much shame around sex and around talking about sex. And 
and this idea that it's maybe so it's so personal it's so intimate it's it's tied up with all these ideas of shame and um and it feels like something taboo like something that we mm-hmm. you know that maybe we shouldn't be going there that we'll be prying um that we don't have the skills to talk about something maybe so kind of sticky and icky but actually you know when we think about sexuality is that really fundamental you know it's everything that makes us social and sexual and sensual beings it's it's so core to who we are it taps into these fundamental needs that we have for connection and so when we think of it in that way actually sex isn't something separate to what we're feeling and doing all the time So there are many good reasons to help our clients improve their sexual lives. What role does sexuality plays in our relational lives besides survival of human species as a reproductive system? I think that I see sexuality as you know, well it's so much more than sexual orientation, it's more than just having sex as well. You know, a lot of my clients are they're really looking for connection and you know sex I guess is is one of the most it's the most kind of physically intimate thing that that two people can do or two or more people can do and and so it's seen as a, a way of meeting those connection needs. One of the things that you talked about in your workshop is the mismatch between what our parts around sex are seeking and what the system's actually getting from sex. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, what I'm seeing in a lot of my clients is, um, you know, exiles with attachment needs, you know, these needs to feel Um, well, to feel seen and to feel safe and validated and and close to people. And what the system does, what protectors do is they see sex or, or even like flirting or sexual interactions as the way to meet these needs, um, the way to feel very close and connected to people. Um, or the way to feel, you know, desired. But actually what happens is that sex is rarely meeting those needs. Sex alone rarely meets those needs to feel really connected and to feel really validated. And what's happening for a lot of my clients with kind of what I call a burden sexual system is that the um, kind of like the, the, the people-pleasing parts, the parts that don't know how to assert their own sexual needs are leading people into sexual situations that aren't like emotionally safe. So a person might not be able to implement the safer sex measures that they want to use, or they might have sex that feels uncomfortable or painful. And so actually... The sex that they're having is is not is not even always an enjoyable experience. 
And then what can happen is that disconnecting protectors can come online. And, and I think lots and lots of people have these protectors that are kind of subtly disconnecting people during sex. And, and so what's happening is, you know, the system, there were, there were protectors reaching out for closeness, really trying to be close to people and other protectors disconnecting from what's happening. And that's really, that's, that's a polarization that can create a lot of, of disorientation and confusion in the system. Beautiful, beautiful. So you talk a lot about the value of internal consent and bringing clients' awareness to all the parts that are involved in sexuality. Where do you start with, with that, with achieving internal consent, even when external consent might be there, internal consent might not be there? So it, it feels like a lot of self-awareness has to be worked Towards. It's so huge. And, you know, one of the things that I love about using IFS for work around sex is that it really it brings this idea to life of, you know, our all parts consenting. And actually, so often people have sex where not all parts are consenting. And actually, one thing that I think about in my workshop is for a lot of people, sex without internal consent is like the, the go-to, it's the norm. And the disconnecting parts that I mentioned kind of make that possible. And so I think that um, helping people tune into that, tune into the, the disconnecting parts and how and why they're showing up can be a, a beginning, a starting point to thinking about internal consent. I also think that the more that a person has kind of maybe unmet attachment needs, you know, the more the fear of rejection and, and abandonment is there, you know, the less someone thinks about their boundaries and thinks about their needs and implements them. And, and so, again, internal consent might not be happening. And so it's really important to help people think about just the concept of needs and boundaries and what that means and, and how their protectors, how their protective parts are overruling those needs to avoid that, that idea of rejection that just feels so, so awful, so intolerable. Victoria, what exactly is internal consent and what can IFS add to this fundamental concept? You say, how does the person make sense of the fact that they have simultaneous consented and not consented to a sexual act? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I think a lot of people think, well, you agree to sex or not, and that's what consent is. And of course, it's so much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. You know, External consent isn't just about consenting to having sex, it's consenting to everything that happens, every sexual act, everything that takes place during that sexual interaction. And so we're thinking about consenting to everything that happens and then every part of us consenting to everything that's happening. And that really takes a lot of, a lot of tuning in to different parts 
the different parts that are present. And, you know, some protectors will push away other parts, will, you know, will overrule them. And so the person may walk away from the, the sexual situation thinking, well, I consented to it, but actually there are parts within their system and maybe very young parts that really didn't want that to happen at all. And that can feel really very traumatic for those parts. But yet the person themselves, you know, if they don't think about it in that way, may really not be labeling it as something traumatic or something non-consensual. Vitaria, you have created one map of burden sexual system and another one beautiful map of an unburdened sexual system. So how can we identify a sexual burdened system? What cues should we look for? Well, I think a big cue is, is what I've talked about in the mismatch of, of kind of what parts are seeking and what they're getting, you know, or the real kind of lack of consensus between parts as to what they want. Um, so some parts really just wanting kind of closeness and safety and then other parts utilizing maybe very kind of horny feelings and looking for sex so I think one yeah one really key point is that that mismatch between um what different parts want um also in a burden sexual system there tends to be very loud self-critical parts mm -hmm. and self-shaming parts that are judging, maybe judging the person um, for the kind of sex that they're having or judging them for not being good enough, judging them for the way that they look. So those parts can be really, really loud in a burdened sexual system. And then as I've talked about the, the parts that disconnect or disassociate and the, the people pleasing parts that um, don't maybe haven't learned how to assert for their needs. Mm, beautiful. And how do managers and firefighters express in a not burdened sexual system? Well, um, in, an, in an unburdened sexual system, there would be managers that would um, really be tuned into the person's needs. You know, that could be their physical sexual health, so safer sex measures, but also what they want, what they feel comfortable with, and um, they'd be you know, able to communicate that. And then also managers who could really, um, you know, can really assess kind of the, the messages that we get in society around sex and sexuality and all these kind of expectations that come from the media and, and, and all these places, you know, able to critically assess them, able to make more of a decision as to whether to take them on or, or to be unburdened from the burdens that they've taken on from those messages. And, you know, firefighters were really thinking about like, you know, spontaneity and playfulness. And, you know, that doesn't just need to be around sex, but actually in just connection with other people. The connection, yes. Connection to oneself, you know, that sort of sensuality, um, living in the body, being in the body and enjoying being in the body um, and really being able to kind of be playful and experience pleasure in, in all its different forms. 
I know that that shame comes up a lot in many different facets of the conversation around sexuality. Exiles hold shame. Um, Non-heteronormative sexual choices are burdened with a lot of shame. And managers hold shame and can trigger firefighter behavior. Is there ever an understanding of shame having an important function or you know, is there is there ways to bring understanding and tenderness to the shame that we hold? How do you work with it? Yeah, I mean, shame is just so much at the core of this work to me. And yeah, I really like this, um, this quote from Brene Brown that Frank Anderson is um, quotes her in his book, Transcending Trauma, and it's um, shame is the, the fear that we're not worthy of love and belonging. And I really, I think that really kind of captures it in terms of the exiles holding shame at the centre of a, a burdened sexual system. And I guess if we look at the flip side of that, it's, you know, learning that we are worthy of love and belonging or, or a person's exiles learning that they're worthy of love and belonging. And, you know, that's not just kind of romantic partnership love. It's that general, like, you know, being worthy of being loved by fellow humans. And so, you know, I really, I love the the idea of, of kind of common humanity when we think about shame. It can feel very alienating. It can feel like, um, it takes someone away from all other people. But actually, this idea of like, are we good enough? It's something that every human feels and questions. And so when we can tune into that, actually, shame is something that connects everybody. Yeah. And so I guess that's a, the, the tender kind of flip side to that, that exiled shame. And I think, you know, what you said about that the, the there's real kind of layers of shame when it comes to sex and sexuality because there's all the cultural burdens as well and the polarizations within those cultural burdens, you know, mm, yeah. people needing to be very sexy and, um, you know, very feminine or masculine. and But then also all the, the shame around sex that comes from kind of fear-based sex education and and religion and and then as you said the um you know for anyone that's kind of sexual or gender diversity and all the internalized phobia and so the shame layers on on shame and and also for someone who is having sex that maybe they're not totally in control of they're not able to assert their needs or it's driven by very compulsive firefighters there's also a backlash in the system um, of self-shaming parts that are maybe trying to regain control. So it's really quite a complicated picture when we think about shame and, and sex and sexuality. So you are speaking for this internalized sexual stigma that you talk. Mm. And also you talk of the shame spiral. Mm. How does this shame spiral express in our sexuality? What what are those shame spirals? Well, I think that, you know, the, the more we think about the, the exiles maybe questioning, you know, am I worthy of love and belonging? 
and and then the maybe quite compulsive firefighter parts thinking well sex or, or flirtation or you know like receiving attention that will that will be the answer that will prove that I'm worthy and you know alongside that you know, the more kind of, the more questioning somebody is of themselves, the more that the kind of the people pleasing parts might be around trying to avoid um, being rejected. And what happens then is that sex, that there's less internal consent, you know, the sex doesn't feel as emotionally safe, because it's being driven by compulsive firefighters and people pleasing managers. And and so a person is having sex that doesn't maybe feel very emotionally safe. And then the, the self-critics and the self-shaming parts really get really loud because they really, they want to kind of restore control. Um, you know, the, 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 the situations of feeling scary may, may be even traumatic. And so then there's lots more, the, the self-shaming parts are very loud and that's feeding into the shame that the exiles are feeling. And then this, the, the process is happening again. And of course, in IFS, we know like parts don't get updated. So they don't realize that what they're doing is not working. And so the compulsive firefighters are coming back online. So is it falling one of those spirals? Yes. Mm. There's um, a lot within your, your workshop that talks about fight or flight, having having sex from an activated nervous system. And could you say a little bit more about how and why that happens? I mean, I think that, um, you know, all the all the kind of key uh, managers and firefighters in the burden sexual system can, um, can put a person in, in fight or flight. So, you know, if a person doesn't feel in control of the sex that they're having, um, you know, in terms of not being able to maybe set their own boundaries um, completely or assert for their needs, um, then or all that, you know, self-critics are around, self-shaming parts are around. So all these parts are really um, are putting someone in fight or flight. They're not creating safety. And um, that can be very, very subtle, or it can be, you know, much more extreme. And of course, if somebody has experienced trauma, and that could be sexual trauma or non-sexual trauma, just being in, a, in an aroused state, like a physiologically aroused state or a very intimate situation can also not feel safe for the system. Victoria, as an illustration of your work and how can IFS help us with our sexuality and the so common sexual difficulties we face in our clinics, like lack of desire, sexual connection and satisfaction, how do you approach these ones like disinterest in sex, loss of libido, for instance? I think, um, you know, when, when the system is in fight or flight, often you know, what happens is that parts, protective parts are going to come in and, and try and find a way to feel safe. Mm -hmm. And so one way of doing that might be to disconnect so that the system doesn't have to fully experience what's happening. Um, or it might be to, to disassociate 
or it could be protective parts are just shutting down um, the desire to have sex or shutting down sexual pleasure because they've learned through life that it's not well that it's not safe or that it's not okay that it's shameful and so a lot of kind of bringing people back to back to feeling sexual arousal or sexual pleasure is um, is helping people to be out of fight or flight, helping people to feel safe. And that might be unburdening from the, the cultural messages around sexual pleasure being shameful. Um, it might be about somebody building their needs and being able to create situations that they want that feel safe yeah. so that parts aren't blocking arousal. And a big, a big part of that is, um, is I think, the self-critics, the, the parts that are take someone out of the present during sex and and a questioning like am I am I good enough is this okay you know am I am I good enough for this person am I going to be rejected beautiful thank you and what about navigating consensual non Monogamy, you say you also offer couples and multi-partner relationship therapy. Let us know more. Um, so I've recently been um, reading about non-monogamy, about consensual non-monogamy. And, it, you know, it's been really interesting for me to notice some of my parts that had been activated around, um, you know, we live in an incredibly, or, you know, within my culture and society, incredibly mononormative We do. society where, you know, really um, anything beyond monogamy is, is seen as kind of less than or um, a defense against something. And, you know, my parts were holding that, you know, I had parts that had really taken that on that, you know, would question if, if, um, if people were opening up their relationships and then thinking about just, you know, friends and people that I know, you know, kind of a part seeing that as a bit of a demotion of their relationship. And so it was really fascinating for me to be reading up on non-monogamy and, and learning about all the different ways that relationships can be um, as equally valid and, and really kind of challenging my own views on that. And actually, something like non-monogamy there's there's so many um judgments around you know so many people have parts that that are burdened by those judgments and so for people navigating consensual non-monogamy it can be really really difficult because friends and even therapists have these burdens and so they may not receive the support that they really need And, you know, one of the really important points is that non-monogamy for many people is an orientation and um, it's a relationship orientation rather than a choice. And so the answer to struggles with non-monogamy isn't necessarily just go back to being monogamous. And actually that can be a very, um, a very hurtful kind of view, a very hurtful standpoint to take. I know Esther Perel gave us a really great book on consensual non-monogamy called Mating in Captivity. But will you share with us some of the, the things that you've read, some of the literature that 
has helped inform your expansion of understanding around it. We can put it in the the notes of our of our talk. I, I recently read a book called Polysecure. It looks at how to build. Um, I'm very interested in attachment and attachment theory, and you know IFS is such a great model for that. And I think it's Jessica Fern. Her book looks at how do people have secure attachments in um, polyamorous relationships when you know the, the nature of polyamory can really trigger anxious attachments. And she talks which is really lovely in terms of IFS terms about secure internal attachment. And, and it's the same in any relationship, monogamous or non-monogamous or, you know, romantic or otherwise, like the, the stronger our internal attach, attachments are, you know, our attachment from self to our, our young parts, the, the more we can then, you know, go out in relationship from our, our adult selves and our unburdened selves. So I think that, you know, that idea of secure attachments is just really, um, and an IFS in that context is really great for working with people around consensual non-monogamy. Victoria, shifting to the workshops you offer and also the therapist parts that come up working with sexuality. So what therapist parts may show up when working with all these sexuality topics? You just mentioned some. Yeah, well, I think um, one is, um, well, I guess we as therapists, we have our judgmental parts um, and, you know, we we need to not shame those judgmental parts. You know, as therapists, we're also burdened by, um, you know, the, the society that we live in, heteronormative, mononormative, gender binary um so you know always we need to be aware of of our judgmental parts that come up um i think another is um is manager parts that um you know when when we want to respond to fight someone else's firefighters from our managers um you know so the parts that want to kind of fix and educate people and and i mean you know educating people isn't <laughs> of course a bad thing but it's um you know it's it's not that is not the self energy that you know also we need to be connecting to um our clients firefighters from um and i think another therapist part is um the part that's um or the parts that are maybe feeling particularly when it comes to like diversity feeling really nervous about am i um you know, am I up to date on things? Am I going to say the wrong thing? Like, I don't know what that term means. Am I ignorant? Um, so the, the fear maybe of being judged and of not, not knowing enough in that sense. You gave a lot of really um, wonderful imaginary scenarios of clients with different um, sexual situations um, that, just in, in reading myself activated, you know, just a lot of, a lot of interesting um, thoughts. And I can, I can see by your, your workshop that it's a great way to be self-reflective and to kind of poke at the things that we might not think about in a talking about, talking about sex, like having a client come in with some really what we might consider unsafe sexual behavior 
And instead of stopping there, going deeper into what informs it and what is informing it for the client. I think it's really profound work that you're doing. And um, I'm curious how you envision um, reaching more people or um, in- including more people in this conversation that we're having now. What do you what do you foresee? Um, well, I mean, I am thinking about um, about more workshops, about how to make them um, as accessible as possible, um, splitting them up into different topics um, so that um, there's, I guess, more, more choice for people. Um, I, I mean, I've, as you've seen, I've done this mapping of burdened and unburdened sexual systems, which I am just um, finishing at the moment and, and then will be putting on my website so that people can, um, yeah, can, can start looking at them and, and thinking about this. And, you know, what I, um, I mean, after those, those scenarios that I and went through the imaginary scenarios. I, I then got the participants to reflect on, or actually it was after my, my case studies, but the, the ways in which um, the themes that were coming out of, of these case studies, the ways in which participants could identify with them, you know, so who um, has worried about being rejected before, who's hidden a part of themselves before, you know, who's felt not good enough, who's craved belonging, and really getting people to, to tune into like the, the fundamental aspects of this work, which is just these, these fundamental needs and, and thoughts that we all have as humans. It becomes really relatable. Yeah, exactly. And so we're not looking at kind of, you know, sex as this scary taboo or extreme thing, but we're just looking at something that's like fundamental about us all. Toria, you just did a workshop on working with sex and sexuality using an internal family system framework. Are there more to come and what structure do they follow? Uh, Yes, there there is. um, I have my next workshop booked in, which starts in in June. um, And it's going to be um, it's going to be three modules um, and it will be um, in the evening in in UK time. So it will be accessible um, to people as well. Hopefully in the the US, I, I had people in Canada um, signing up for my workshop here but actually it was the middle of the night so um, so I'm looking at um, a, a moduled approach um, for my next workshop um, and one module is going to be really digging into like what what does a burden sexual system look like mm-hmm. um, who are the key firefighters and managers um, looking at, at shame spirals of, of polarizations of um, cultural burdens and and then as a separate module I'm going to look at working with sexual relationship and gender diversity um, which I, I also think IFS is such a great model for understanding um, 
some of the, um, the there's theories about um, identity development around sexual and gender diversity, and actually using an IFS lens really adds depth to those models because uh, we can look at how different parts go through the um, the stages of identity development at different speeds. Um, and so it's really, and also the shame burden. So it's, it's a really exciting topic. So I'm planning a full evening on that. Um, and then another module on um, somatic sexuality, like thinking about being in the body, about fight or flight, um, really experiential, um, letting participants kind of guiding them into their bodies, into their sensations, doing um, connection and intimacy exercises with each other to see what parts come up. Um, and then thinking about an, an unburdened system, what we really kind of are aspiring to and, and for. So interesting. Sounds very rich and wonderful. So, Victoria, thank you so much for having us and for helping us to bring such a sensitive topic to discussion and light. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha. And we hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. And may peace, connection, mutual respect and social justice inspire our world. Thank you. Take care, Victoria. Thank you so much.